I'm walking along and I see this bear behind a log. I say to my, my brothers ahead of me, and I go, Tom, Tom, there's a bear. And he goes, what? And he just keeps walking towards the log. I go, there's a bear behind the log. He goes, what? And he stands, stops, and he looks at me. And the bear stands up, and it's got a five-pound block of Velveeta cheese in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you think about it. We're four days hike in. Somebody had to carry that five-pound yeah. block of cheese in. And that in. was going to be so great to have. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that bear didn't carry it for that long. No. All right. So we're going across the street, up behind the gate. And... So I do have my laptop. We can take a look at what okay. across the creek. Okay. And I brought... I brought my iPad to try out. Oh, good. Up here. I like your spiky collar. It makes you look tough. I started wearing that after I saw a video of a mountain lion attacking the Doberman. Oh. In the owner's backyard. The only reason the dog survived is because it had a collar like that. It's functional and it looks punk rock. And she's a badass <laughs> puppy. We've been rewarding her every time we come to a mountain lion scrape or, you know, she sniffs it. And she finds, she definitely likes to find deer bones. So, cracking down. Yeah, see how interested she is in that? It's weird. The detour is weird, but look at those toes. Yeah. That's a lion. That's a lion for sure. Huh. And it's pretty fresh. Yeah. Because yeah. What, it's Wednesday, and we were here Sunday. Yeah. Do you have two cameras to set up today, or just one? Uh, just one. Hey everybody, welcome to the seventh episode of the Go Get Outside podcast. I am your host, Jason Milligan. Yes, I am still your host. You might have noticed the show started a little differently today. Instead of going straight into the open and then coming to my annoying welcome, we started with a little field audio of a few people out doing something that maybe you weren't sure what they were doing. Well, let me explain what's going on. The format is going to be a little different than usual. We're going to go out with Joanna Turner. She's a local here in Los Angeles who is a camera trapper. If you don't know what camera trapping is, it's kind of like candid camera. And if you're really young and you don't know what the hell candid camera is, it basically was the early version of all those hidden camera shows. So camera trapper is a person that hides a camera out in the wilderness so they can try to get pictures of wildlife when they least expect it. Joanna Turner is one of those hobbyists who does that for fun. So I went out with her earlier this year in Big Tahunga in the Angeles National Forest in northern Los Angeles here. I went out with her, her friend Dan, and her dog Ripley to repair one of their camera boxes that was destroyed by a bear and then check on the other boxes that they had in the area, download photos and things like that. So the format of today's show is going to be split between the interview with Joanna talking about camera trapping and with the field audio of me tagging along with them that morning. It's a little bit of an experiment for the show. Hopefully it works out. Hopefully everybody digs it. Let's get to that right now. Off on the way in. 
I'm going to drop them out off. And okay. we'll set the camera on the way back. Okay. How's that sound? I'm thinking, I'm thinking right there. Looking right here. Yeah, nice angle. Yeah, because so then you get everything coming this way and anything coming out of here. You shouldn't get any wind. That's nice. This is a real classic lion scrape. Have you seen these before? Call it a scrape. They stop and they, they go like this with their back feet. They pile up dirt and then they'll they'll pee on it to make a, the scent there. So it's a visual signal and a scent signal to other lions. And it's mostly the males that do this. To And we think we have two males in this canyon right now. So there are a lot of these, you know, every 50 feet there's another one. So they're telling each other so, so it's strictly a territory yeah. marking. And yeah. if they run into each other, they'll fight to the death of one of them. Is the lion in Griffith Park still around? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's still there. He's still healthy. He's one of the people's basements. Yeah. He mostly hangs out at the cemetery at Forest Lawn because all the deer eat the grass and the ornamental plants. Mm -hmm. So he just hangs out there and picks off a deer every couple of days and doesn't, doesn't move around much. He doesn't need to. I'm Joanna Turner. I'm camera trapper. Uh, hiking was the first thing I liked, and then this has grown out of that. And the other term people sometimes use is citizen scientist, because I do give some of the information I get to biologists. So tell me a little bit about what a camera trapper is and what that, what that means to be a camera trapper. Camera trapping is a way to do wildlife photography when you're not actually there. So you leave the camera out in the woods for two or three weeks and it has a motion sensor on it that will wake it up and trigger it to take a, a picture or video when something walks by. You have to be able to predict where the animal is probably going to go before you set the camera there and then after that it's a whole lot of trial and error. How did you get into that? Is that just a passing fancy like oh that sounds interesting let me check that out or did you come across it some other way? I went to a a class that a biologist gave in Anza Borrego State Park. He was a mountain lion researcher there, and this was about six years ago now. So his his class that he offered just free to the public through the park was that you could follow a mountain lion biologist sort of through a normal day in his life. And it was all day long. It was eight hours. And we drove out to a couple of his trapping sites where they set a, a cage trap to get them outlined to go in and so that they can then tranquilize it and put a collar on. At the cage traps he had camera traps to see if animals were using the area, the same thing. And I had I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know that existed at all. We sat down and he got the card out of the camera and he starts flipping through these pictures and there were bobcats and mountain lion and deer and, and all of this had happened in the last couple of weeks and that was the most exciting part of the day. I just said, well, where do you get these? How do, you know, how does this work? And he said, oh, you just buy them at sporting goods stores, you know? I said, they're not too expensive. That was about six years ago. So the technology has probably changed a fair bit since then. Yeah, it has. The very first camera I got had a trigger time of something like five seconds, which means that the animal walks by and five seconds later it takes a picture. And that was the best you could get at that point and it took six D batteries. It's about the size of a lunchbox and heavy. Pictures weren't all that good. 
usually I just got a whole bunch of blank pictures and had to wonder what what animal right. walked by. Oh, here's a picture of maybe what was a, a lynx. <laughs> here's the tip of a tail of something. Yeah, it was a long time. It was probably six months before I got a, my first mountain lion picture on that camera. And you were probably so was, excited. Yeah. And you showed it to everyone you knew. Oh, yeah. You're like the mom with the wallet with the kid picture yeah. that breaks it out at all the parties. Yeah, and I'm showing it to... You know, I showed it to the biologist who whose class I took, and you know he's like, yeah. So <laughs> like I've seen a million of yeah. these. <laughs> and he was encouraging, and he's like, okay. And I'm like, but look at it. You can see the whole animal, and he walks right by, and then he stops for a second, and he looks over, and you know, watch it again, watch it again. So yeah, I get pretty excited. So after you went to that and you found out about camera trapping, how did you go about getting into it? When I could afford it. And when my birthday came up, I would get another camera and I, you know, I started to get more cameras. I took a couple of tracking classes in L.A. There's a guy in Orange County, Dick Newell, who has a group called OC Trackers. And he has a he has classes and then he has workshops once a month where you go out and on some dirt roads and just do tracking together. And so I got better at that. I got better at knowing where it, where the animals would be and, I, and the technology improved. And now at this point, we still do have store-bought cameras, but what we're doing now, uh, my friend Dennis and I are building custom camera setups with really high-quality DSLR cameras. They work the same way. They still have a sensor, and it senses on motion, but the images are a whole lot better quality, and they actually have white flashes so that you get color pictures at night, as opposed to most of the store-bought cameras have infrared light. So at night, the, the images are black and white. It's getting more complicated, but the pictures are getting really beautiful. And we're starting to be able to make it artistic rather than just, rather than just oh, there's, a, there's this animal that lives here. There. Right. Kind of like the difference between an image that's newsworthy and an image that's a yeah. composed piece of art. Yeah. So how many cameras do you think you have? I mean, think or no, you probably know. How many <laughs> cameras do you have out right now? I think eight commercial cameras and three DSLR setups. Yeah, three. And I and Dennis is building me a fourth, which is almost ready. He has another 10 regular cameras and he has five DSLR builds. So And so how much work is it to to manage all these cameras because you have to return to them, check the photos, to replace batteries, things like that. How yeah, much we time have to go to each. We have a couple different locations and the cameras can only go about three weeks before the batteries and the flashes die. And, uh, you know, other things happen to them. They get rained on. Some water can seep into the case. Um, bears might attack them. Bears attack and eat them. And you never know when that's going to strike. Um, yeah, we kind of have a schedule going about three main locations. And so every three weeks, you know, every weekend on Saturday we go out. And so each camera is set up goes about three weeks in between times that we check and that that timing works out well for knowing that we're going to get some good animals pretty much within three weeks if there's if there are mountain lions or bears in the area they'll pass by in that time you said there's a camera that's damaged by a bear right that you're yeah, replacing right and how do you know that it's damaged we came up on sunday to check on it it had been here three weeks and uh it was hanging off the tree, big crooked angle. There's teeth marks in the case. 
these are custom built by Dennis Calais. So it's a Canon 60D DSLR, 18 to 35 millimeter lens, nice wide angle. It, you can see Ripley is all over the scent of the bear. And you can see scratch marks all across the case. He scratched the glass that protects the lens, so I need to replace that today. There's a tooth mark right here. Um, the cables connecting it, he had, the bear had pulled them out and snapped them in half. So we've made now sort of releasable plugs, like, you know, eight, eight inch mini mm -hmm. plugs, so that if he does pull on them, he'll just unplug it rather than break it and we have to take it home and resolder. In the spring, they're hungry and they're cranky. Usually by fall, they get used to having a camera around and they settle down, but always first thing in the spring. We just haven't found anything that works. So you probably pretty often set a camera up somewhere, give it a few weeks, find out you're not getting anything except maybe squirrels, and then you have to decide you want to move it elsewhere, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we base we base that on is it a good area? Is there water? Is there a lot of food? Is there you know not many hikers or maybe not any hikers at all, which is the best. And if we go the first 3 weeks or a month and we don't get anything but there are other signs around there were good tracks or some deer bones or something that you know we may stick it out for a while and uh plus the stuff is heavy so we hate to <laughs> pack it all up and move it somewhere else it's like no we'll just wait other than things like bears attacking because i went out with you today i went out with you we went to go check some camera traps and then you needed to replace one that had been damaged by a bear but I'm sure bears aren't the only problems and the only dangers to your cameras. What other kind of problems do you come across? All the other animals leave the camera alone. We have problems with people, not very much anymore, because the cameras really are in some hard-to-get-to places. The two problems we have with people are, I guess, every, <laughs> I guess everybody knows what goes on in the forest. I can say it. I mean, there are marijuana grows, and there are people who definitely don't want to be have their picture taken so if we're in a remote canyon with a good water source where people don't go we're crossing paths with those people the other thing that can be a problem is just hikers who don't know what the camera is and maybe think they're being spied on by the forest service or they just they just want to go hiking and be away from people you don't like to all of a sudden see that something's watching you and i totally understand that so sometimes people will cover it up or, you know, if, if they can move the camera, they'll place it face down so that it can't take any more pictures or, you know, they'll put a rock in front of it or something. But that's pretty rare. And then the, the pot farmers have stolen some cameras and damaged some cameras, like, beyond repair. Hit it, you know, hit them with a rock or kick them till they're, till they're dead. <laughs> Basically, if we get any humans on the camera in any of these locations, we'll most likely move just just because it's not worth losing expensive equipment. And it's probably not a great spot for animals anyway, yeah. if humans are there, right? Yeah. But one of the things that would be great, I mean, especially if you know people listen to this and start to learn about it, the people that I have come across who go to my website and see the images, once they know what it is, if they're out hiking and they see a camera, then they usually smile and pose, think, you know, think it's great. It's like, hey, if you, you leave it alone, we'll all get to share in these, in these images, you know. So yeah, we st these were our main cameras for a while. These used to cost about $300. And then they've now become our sort of expendable 
scouting cameras. So we'll put these in a place where somebody might steal it, and if it, you like know, on it's this gone, log. Yeah, yeah, then, yeah. oh well. Yeah. With enough effort, anything's takeable. Yeah, they want it. Right. Well, and I guess the danger with these would always be whether the lens is damaged. Yeah. It's funny, people don't think, to, people don't know how they work. Mm-hmm. So when I've had, you know, pot farmers come up to them, they try to break the whole thing. So they don't know they could just pop, you know. Well, maybe we, shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't tell them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> By then their picture's already taken. Yeah, yeah. And they do know, the, the pot farmers know what cameras are because they use them themselves. I had one shot once, that was interesting shot to death with a pistol. I got the message. You were telling me a story about some of your other camera trapper buddies like to play pranks on each other too. Yes, we've gotten pretty creative. My friends have gotten gotten pretty good at it. I The very first one, a friend of mine dressed up in a bear costume. The camera at the time was in the Verdugo Hills, which is this tiny little area. There's, there's There are no bears there. And he he, he did want to fool me. He wasn't just out for a laugh. He he went when it was dark. Oh, he wanted you to think it was really yeah, a bear? <laughs> yeah, it, it was a long story, too. He he dropped his flashlight at, at some point in because he had these big furry mitts on. So he was stumbling around in the dark, and he couldn't remember exactly where the camera was. <laughs> so I've just oh, so this. it was instant karma. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this really weird-looking furry guy pawing around in the dirt looking for his flashlight <laughs> like what the hell happened so he said yeah it didn't work out the way i thought um the second one that that came out really good was my friend jane who went to the fabric store got some leopard print fur fake fur sewed it into the shape of a tail and then went up to my camera and snuck up behind it so that it wouldn't see her and then dragged the tail in front of the in front of the sensor. So I got like this, this blurry shot of rosette printed fur, <laughs> and it was it was believable. I mean, you know, who would go and do that at eleven o'clock at night, way off trail where they know that there are bears? And you know, so the, our first thought was not, oh, this is a prank. Our first thought was, we got an ocelot. And we're gonna be famous. So <laughs> the only the only tip off that that we're getting pranked is if one of my friends starts asking me when I'm going to check a certain spot. Oh, have you have you been back there? What did you you know what animals are you getting up there? Why are you asking? Also, if you see any animals that have designer labels on their on their flesh or <laughs> tags hanging from their tails, that that might be a sign too. Yeah, nice backpacks, REI <laughs> right. gear. So what draws you to do the camera trapping? adds a a real challenge in a real different level of interest than just hiking and not that I don't enjoy just hiking I definitely still do but when you start to learn about the animals that live here and you get to see them acting normally and naturally and calm if you came across an animal that animal's suddenly worried about you you're worried about that animal and so you're not you don't get to experience how it, it reacts in its natural yeah. habitat right yeah exactly most people's encounters the animal runs away or has to act defensive and so there's this idea that bears and mountain lions are dangerous because they always snarl and but that's because they're afraid <laughs> you know this is this is just one way to not affect them 
at all. They're, they don't get stressed out. It doesn't change their behavior. You just get to see purely what happens when you're not there. And they have a lot of tea parties and <laughs> things like that, right? That's what, that's what you've learned? But yeah, bobcats are big ravers. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do with all the photos that you get? I mean, clearly you throw away a lot of them because they're, they're useless, but the good photos, what do you end up doing with them? Um, pretty much just share them on my website and on Facebook. In a couple of areas, we've given them to the National Park Service. Not, I mean, shared them. They've used it to track a couple of mountain lions that, that were new to the area that they didn't know about. Those guys don't have time to set out cameras and check cameras and cha- change batteries. And that's one of the really rewarding parts of this, is to be able to contribute to a study and, and contribute to conservation through something that I would do anyway just for fun. So have you been part of studies and other things by using your pictures? Have, have they been useful for Forest Service or Park Services? or, or for any, Yeah, for the like National that? Park Service, for the mountain lion study in the Santa Monica Mountains, I uh, was able to find pictures of P12, who's the dominant male lion in that area. And his collar, he broke his collar probably fighting with another lion a few years ago and they lost track of him it didn't function at all anymore they couldn't find him either via gps or or by their uh, radio transmitters the antennas that they hold out just to get a signal and know that he's in the area so they really didn't know if he was still alive or what had happened and i was able to get a few pictures of him that showed the damage to his collar so then they knew he was still out there they still haven't been able to recapture him they did start watching a couple of areas more closely that he tends to use and so he's still alive and that's been really important for them to know. We also found an uncollared male also in the Santa Monica's that they kind of the Park Service kind of had hints that someone else was around but didn't have any photos or any DNA from they can get they can get DNA samples from scat that's another thing i do sometimes is collect poo (laughs) don't we all (laughs) isn't isn't that what we're all really looking for in life just to collect scat you aren't one of those people who've learned to identify animals by the taste of their scat are you (laughs) no no but i do sometimes smell it and you can tell coyote poop from bobcat or lion from the smell so describe the scent for us what what differentiates Uh. (laughs) them is one tangy whereas one's musky cat cat poop universally smells like cat poop it's a sh- really sharp ammonia type smell anyone who's ever lived with a cat knows that it, smell yeah. yeah yeah if you have been near a litter box that's what mountain lion poo smells like coyote which is the only other thing that can look like that is <laughs> more fruity maybe for for some reason i thought you're gonna say it smells like reese's peanut butter cups or something <laughs> Roses. So it smells smells more fruity. Speaking of scents, let, let's let's talk about one of my favorite things about uh, when I was following you out today. So you don't just set out the traps; you also sometimes set out a little bit of bait, something to attract the animals. And uh, I found it pretty interesting some of the things that you had with you for that. Yeah, we've tried all kinds of things. The idea is to get the animal to slow down in front of the camera just long enough to get them to pot and you know enough for the trigger to go off and to get a couple of good shots and then they can move on we don't use food as lures for a couple reasons first of all it's illegal to feed wildlife in la and in most places second of all it doesn't really work very well because you tend to get a lot of raccoons and possums a mountain lion isn't really attracted to a hunk of meat or something anyway they 
they eat mule deer and they eat fresh mule deer. So you're saying they're picky. Yes. They're very, foodies. Very. <laughs> so food doesn't work. So we try to come up with other ways to get their attention and sense sense that they don't come across in their normal lives work really well. Something like, uh, you know, essential oils of sage or something isn't, isn't going to do anything. They smell that all the time. But we've tried vanilla extract, Vicks VapoRub, definitely all different kinds of perfumes. The one perfume that works is Calvin Klein Obsession. And that's Which not is just, what I found so amusing. Yes, yeah, because we have an expensive bottle of cologne and we're spraying it all over a dead log in the woods. But they go crazy for something in it, so they'll cheek rub on it just like your house cat does on a on a new scent yeah because they want to smell that good yeah 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 and and the gray foxes love it and the bears love anything that smells you know their sense of smell is super powerful so anything new is is fun for them anything that could potentially be a food item they love the smell so So don't leave obsession in your car in bear country is what we're (laughs) learning do not leave that perfume in your car don't wear it and i have another friend who uses axe body spray and he said that works pretty well too I might switch over to because that's a lot cheaper. You may find out that the mountain lions and the bears in the area are too snooty for Axe body spray, and maybe they demand obsession, only the best for them. It's Hollywood here. That's right. I don't know what they they like up in Santa Cruz, but... You were telling me also that sometimes you have some issues with the Forest Service or rangers or things. Yeah, it it still goes back to people don't know what camera trapping is, really. I did have a run-in where a game warden came across one of my cameras, figured it was put there by somebody up to no good, because that's what happens 99% of the time in the Angeles, is someone's doing something bad. And she actually confiscated the entire setup. So they cut the cable locks, they cut the padlocks, they took everything away. And I came hiking back a couple weeks later to find a note hanging on the tree that just said, call me, I have your equipment. Uh, it wasn't a strongly worded letter? It was, well, not at that point. So that was that was terrifying for me because I had put so much money and time and effort into that setup. And I had picked a place that was way off in the middle of nowhere. And I don't know what the warden was looking for, but she had what she told me is she thought that there was poaching in the area. And my response back was, how many poachers do you know that have thousand dollar camera setups with external flashes i mean if i'm just looking for a deer to shoot it's not going to be this huge elaborate thing and she said oh i've never seen anything like it before i didn't know what it was and they do require the forest service requires that you have a permit to do commercial photography but i'm not selling the images so i've had kind of a go around with them about that but they just don't have a category for what i'm doing they'd like to regulate it because that's what they do so in a few years they probably will yeah they'll develop something but i mean over overall they they haven't been mean to me about it or anything they just they're just trying to manage the forest and know what's going on i I imagine at some point you could become very valuable to them because you could aid them in tracking these animals that they need to keep tabs on anyway. Yeah, especially fish and wildlife with, you know, trying to know the effects that the station fire has had on populations and how many how many fawns are we seeing and how many bear cubs are we seeing in any given year? What What is the drought doing to change, you know, habits of animals? Are they starting to move more into the canyons and more towards the water sources? And is that changing the stream side habitat i mean there's all sorts of things and there there's no money for 
actual studies. So no one, no one knows any of this. Have you started to try to document any of these types of things? You know, I keep all of the important images. They all have time and date stamps. M- many of them have weather. They'll have a temperature and, an, and a moon phase on the, you know, that the camera records with that. I have noticed some interesting things about wildlife since the station fire. And, you know, this is pretty obvious, but they all, the animals became really densely concentrated in small pockets that didn't burn. And for those that don't know, the station fire was a fire. How many years has it been now? Six years? Something like that? It'll be five years in August. So it was a really large fire five years ago here in the Angeles Forest that burnt, I don't remember the number, but it was many, many acres of land. And there are still areas now, five years later, that are closed off because the park service or the forest service says they're not safe for hiking or or the area needs to replenish itself before people are allowed into it yeah they uh, that fire was very severe it it took off it you know it was a combination of weather conditions and drought conditions and it it burned everything to the ground there was there wasn't a shred of green for miles and miles one of the first areas that i had cameras in since then was up around mount wilson because they protected they protected the structures on mount wilson they did water drops and they did fos check drops and they protected all the the radio towers and the tv towers on on mount wilson i'd actually had cameras there before the fire and so since that was one of the first places that opened i put some cameras up around in the same area and found a whole lot more bears mountain lion activity where the same lion would come by every two weeks which is real frequent for them but they were their whole habitat shrunk so they were you know crossing the same areas more frequently we saw a couple of bears a couple of bear cubs um born i want to say two years after the fire the mother and both the cubs seem to have mange Um, they're in really poor condition the mother was super thin and had almost no fur on her face, uh, a lot of patches of bare spots on her chest. She had some scabby, bleeding little sores on her face. She survived, and one of her cubs survived. And then we were just able to see the next spring, everyone looked healthier. And both of her cubs the following spring survived, whereas just one did before um things like that so you get to follow the stories of some of these animals lives yeah and really see how how their lives change and when they're doing well and when they're doing bad yeah and the bears we can identify because they usually have a white patch of fur on their chest that you know is a certain shape so if you get to see that you know oh that's that's this one you know do you tend to give them names based on that shape like if one has a shape of florida you name them (laughs) tallahassee or something (laughs) That we do name we do name the ones that we see a lot, but the names kind of come up randomly. We have a mountain lion named King Arthur. He's huge. He's really muscular. You can tell he's been in a couple fights, but he's he carries a sword. <laughs> he carries a sword. He jousts. <laughs> so we just said he's the king. You know, he's the king around here. So they became King Arthur. There's a female around, so she became Guinevere. We have a mountain lion we call Jughead, and he was named because he always had a really huge full belly. And there was an old comic book, Archie and Jughead. And Jughead was always eating cheeseburgers. That comic may be old, but they still make brand new Archie comics. Do they? Yeah, if you go to any grocery store at any time, there are Archie Digest in there. I don't know who buys them, but clearly (laughs) someone does. So let's get out those wires. 
We have to put one pole there, nice solid in there, and then okay. then one over here. So let's do that. So we need, which way you want to go? This way? Or you want to go this way and use this as a mount? Let's go this way because it helps it. I can Stabilize use this it? and okay. the log. So the cool thing about these plugs now, we can set this up and we don't have to do the wires until last. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's great. As long as the bears don't realize that they can pull on that plug. So is that a the sensor is there and then is that also a flash in the other box? Or? Yeah, the bottom one is the flash and this is the sensor. It'll wake up when the animal's right on the bank and then the camera takes a six shot per second burst. So by the time it takes a few steps and has a has a paw on that rock right there, that's where I want everything to happen. So does it just continue to fire the entire time that something is in front of the sensor? Yep. It's kind of hard to, to do your composition in a way that you could get all, all angles. You're either going to get one direction or the other. And before I started coming with Dennis Havana, I wasn't worried about composition so much as can I even catch something? You know, so they taught me a lot about set camera setup. Well, we we were really the same way, you know, yeah. up until up until we started doing this. It was just you know I want to see an animal, and now it's going to be I want some green in it, and I like the reflection yeah. off the water, and I mean, <laughs> get a wild animal when you're not here at all to stand a certain way. Uh-huh. It's, it's tricky. So the blue tape is so that I don't mess up the focus when I put it back in the case. So we set it to autofocus, take a shot, and then turn it back to manual. The autofocus doesn't work at night because there's no light. So we have to pick our focus spot ahead of time. Once the sensor signals the camera, hey, there's something there. The camera wakes up and starts taking pictures. Immediately? There's no charge time or anything? Uh, there's a short wake-up time, and I'm not, it's different with every camera. The Bushnell there is a, like just under one second wake-up time. The other camera I have there that I had hanging here is about a two-second wake-up time. So how is the sensor powered? It has a little half AA battery in it. Oh, that's all it needs? Yeah. Because it's on all the time, right? And it doesn't send out a signal. What it's doing is looking at all of the temperature. It's looking for a big spike, you know, some kind of a rise rate in the temperature. So it's a thermal sensor. It's a thermal sensor, so it, oh. it sees a voltage. You know, it's looking at this voltage, and it's calculating what the voltage is all the time. And So gradual changes and don't affect it, right? But then when it sees a spike, some, some rise rate, and whatever that is that they've got figured out, it, uh, yeah, it sends a signal. Normal. Yeah. So where would you like to see this go, um, just for you, for the sport, whatever? And do you consider this a sport? I don't know what you would call this, <laughs> for, for this for this pursuit. Yeah. Uh, where would you like to see it go from here? I would like to have photos that are artistically good enough to sell or at least be appreciated as wildlife photography. Um, because I think you can get some amazing shots that you that would be impossible handheld.
you'll just you can't sit out here for three weeks and wait for mountain lion to walk by and and get that close and to you. get yeah so i'd like to see recognition of it as as its own form of photography and then as far as conservation wise we're kind of working on documenting some urban mountain lion populations and if i could document that they were crossing freeways or using a certain chunk of land that maybe somebody wants to put a big development on it would be nice to be able to contribute to something like that and say look if this is a corridor that we've identified you can't you can't block this off or if you block this off you're gonna have problems you build a hundred houses right here you're gonna have a mountain lion traveling right through the middle of it because that's all he knows and it's his only way from this this area of habitat to the next you know how many people work with you maintaining these cameras and placing them and collecting photos and everything that's involved uh, mostly it's just Dennis and I um, our friend Dan who was with us on the hike today has been along with us lately um, he's he's great he's a lot of fun and he's also really good at electronics so he's helping us figure out battery life issues and wiring and yeah I imagine the technology is only improving yeah and the because you were talking about you now you take videos and and photographs um, the video quality and the photo quality I'm sure is improving things are probably getting cheaper I would hope yeah and as new models of cameras you know we're using Canon DSLRs right now and every year they come out with a new higher megapixel whatever and it drops the price of all the used ones mm -hmm. <laughs> so we just wait for that to happen then we you know go on eBay and so if someone wanted to start trying this out or if someone wanted to help out what's a what's a good first step for them good first step is learning some basic tracking learning about animal behavior there's there are a lot of good books that can get you started or you know go see Dick Newell at OC Trackers. There's also a, a group called Earth Skills that does classes in Malibu Creek and other parts around LA that does tracking and animal behavior. Do you know if there's anything nationally, if people say we're on the other east coast or up north or anything like that? No, there are only small local groups. So they need to search in their area and yeah, see if they can find something. Yeah, and then once you start doing that and you have a good idea of where animals go, I would start with a real inexpensive camera. You could get one for about $100, experiment with it, learn learn what works. You'll have to learn, you know, don't set it in front of tall grass or branches that are going to blow around because you'll get pictures of wind. And there's a lot of, like I said, it's just trial and error. And, and be patient because it's going to be a while before you get anything real exciting, unless you're super lucky. It, it just takes a while to learn the right setup in the right areas. Well, let's talk about that. What are some of the most interesting animals that you've you've gotten on camera? The one that, that we want the most is one of the smallest species around here is, is the ringtail. They're a branch of the raccoon family. They're about the size of a squirrel, but they have a really long ringed black and white tail. And they're completely nocturnal. They're only out in the dark. And they eat bugs and lizards and berries. And I've gotten them on camera in six years, twice that I can think of now, maybe three times if I went back through. Dennis has not gotten any ringtail yet. And we don't know, <laughs> we don't know why. We've tried all different habitats. They should be around. We have a friend in in the San Gabriel Valley and Big, Big Dalton Canyon that sees them all the time. Maybe they're really camera shy. Yeah. So that's, if we get a good picture of a ringtail, we'll be super excited. My personal absolute all-time favorite was I got video of a 
mother mountain lion and her two kittens and they walk up to the camera she lays down and the two kittens nurse on her for 10 minutes or so and they kind of play with each other they you know try to bite each other's tails and then they all take a nap together and you were able to capture all of that on camera it was all right in front of my camera did not predict it at all it was just a spot where a new lions walked by so that was that was really really fun so if people want to see these videos and these photos how can they do that uh, most of the videos are on my youtube channel which is called cougar magic and then on facebook there's a page also called cougar magic that we post updates from dennis and from robert and dan and whoever gets pictures we we post them there so every few days there's something fun on there that's the most interactive you know, that's that's a fun way to get questions answered. So do you run everything through Facebook and YouTube, or do you also have a website or an Instagram or anything like I that? Have a, I have a web... I have, have the domain name cougarmagic.com, and right now it's just a single page with some of my best DSLR photos. I'll plan to work on that over the summer when I have time and make it a little more detailed. Okay, well, great. Thanks for taking me out today. Thanks for sitting under a tree next to my aunts and doing this interview. So I have some updates from Joanna since we recorded this. She is currently working with the Angeles National Forest to get set up with a permit, and she also is hoping to help them keep tabs on the wildlife in the area and promote conservation with her pictures. So some of that was discussed as a potential opportunity in the interview, and it looks like it's heading that direction, so that's great news. She also is working with Beth Pratt Bergstrom with the National Wildlife Federation, She's trying to help them raise money for the Liberty Canyon overpass. So I know most of you probably don't go to the website and check out the show notes after each show. I get it. I listen to podcasts. I usually don't check out their show notes either. Pretty standard stuff. If you are ever going to go to the website and check out the show notes, make it this week. We're going to have links to all kinds of things. The Cougar Magic website, this Liberty Canyon overpass, a special feature the AP did on Camera Trappers and Joanna. You're going to get to see all sorts of sample pictures of the kinds of things she's getting with these camera traps and some of the videos that she gets. For instance, there will be a video linked to of three bear cubs running through frame. You know you think bear cubs are cute. If you don't think bear cubs are cute, there's something terribly wrong with you. Go to the site, gogetoutside.com slash podcast. Scroll down, you'll see the listing for this episode with Joanna. You'll get all those pictures and all those links. Do you want to talk to me? Or anybody else here at the show, any of the other people at Butcher Bird, you have something to say about the show, positive, negative, in between, you want to make fun of my voice, my haircut, whatever, email us, go at butcherbirdstudios.com. Do you want to call us? Do you want to record your voice in a voicemail for us? You can do that. Call our Google Voice number, 818-925-0106. Hey, While you're doing all this, sending these emails and making phone calls and checking out show notes, why don't you go into iTunes or Stitcher or however you listen to this. Do me a favor. Make sure you're subscribed and then rate and review the show. If you've already done that, you're awesome. You're one of the best people that has ever lived on the planet Earth. If you haven't done it yet, you're not quite one of the best people who's ever lived on the planet Earth. I think you would like to be one of those people. Subscribe, rate, review, be awesome. That's it for this week. But you should definitely come back for next week. We're going to have Chris Caloose of the Enormo cast. If you are a climber, I probably don't need to tell you anything else. Chris Caloose 
is a pretty well-known climber, but he is also the force behind the Enormocast, which is pretty much the definitive climbing podcast. He and I met up in Salt Lake City earlier this year, and he let me go hang out in his hotel room and record an interview with him. He's a cool dude. He's funny. He has a way better radio voice than me. Come back next week. Check out Chris Galoose. In the meantime, enjoy your week. Thanks for listening. See you next week.